0: All right. Good morning, beloved. Great to see each one of you here today. What a wonderful morning to worship with all of you. This time we come to the preaching of God's word. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter 2, our verses for this morning will be verses 16 through 19. Um, I will be reading out of the ESV translation today. There is one of those in your pew, if you'd like to uh, follow along and help yourself to that. For our context this morning, I do want to read down to the end of the chapter. As I said, we'll be working through the rest of these verses uh, this week and next week, but they they apply to our context um, with what we're covering today as well. Well, let's get started. In Colossians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 16. Here now are the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up, without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch, referring to things that all perished as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Today, we have more churches and more denominations of Christianity than ever before, and it begs the question, who's right? Which denomination or which sect of Christianity is teaching the whole truth? Have you ever wondered that before? With all these different teachings out there concerning salvation and who Christ is, how can we know who is right? Well, let me begin by first of all saying that God doesn't care about man-made denominations as much as we might like them. What God cares about is doctrine. What God cares about is biblical truth being accurately taught, being accurately understood, and being accurately applied. And so if you want to know what biblical truth is, where do you go? You go to the Bible. You go to the Bible. You go to the inspired word of God. God has spoken in his word. And you let God be true and every man found, what, a liar. And once you come to understand what the word of God says, you embrace that truth. And then you reject all other teachings that are outside of it. In other words, not only must we receive the right message about who Christ is and what Christ has done, but we must also reject all wrong teachings about who Christ is and what Christ has done or the lack thereof. Listen, for example, to Titus 1, verses 7-11 through as Paul gives a description of a faithful minister of the gospel. He says, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but a hospital, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to, now notice, the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also, so not only should he be able to give uh, instruction and in sound doctrine, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's who you should who your teacher should be. That's the qualifications of an overseer of the church. A preacher who stands behind God's pulpit, who oversees the Lord's church, who proclaims the word of God, must be one who will not only proclaim the right message, but he must also be willing to rebuke those who contradict it. And beloved, we live in a day and age where the church openly teaches heresy. I mean, let's be honest. Where pastors are more concerned about being liked by men than being right with God. But what really shocks me is the fact that so many people sit in the pews each week of those churches, blind to the fact that they are being deceived. There's one other text I want to share with you before we get started in ours. Listen to Jude verses 3 and 4. It's only one chapter in Jude. Short little letter, but very instructional with false teaching. He writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, this is what Jude himself really wanted to write to the church about, our common salvation, this spirit said, "Ah, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. So he's, he's appealing to them. What's he appealing for? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now who are these people, you ask? They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see throughout the New Testament and certainly our time in 2 Peter chapter 2, warning after warning after warning about people not um, outside the church but pretenders inside of the church who have crept in unnoticed and whose motive is to deceive these are people who want to pervert the gospel of God's grace they want to teach you a different gospel and in doing so they deny the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so not only must the pastor rebuke the false teaching that's out there, but Jude says, I'm also appealing to you, the believers, the the church, to denounce or reject all false teaching as well when you hear them. And if you hear it and you're unsure, well then, and you're not going to speak up, be sure to grab somebody else, one of the leaders within the church, and say, I'm not sure, they're speaking to a bunch of people, did not sound like anything I've ever heard in the Bible before. And so this is exactly what Paul is instructing the Colossians to do in chapter 2, to defend the faith and to reject all false teaching. Now, the letter to the Colossians is an important one. In fact, the more time I spend studying it, the more important that I see as it is an open rebuttal to false teachers. It restates the the basic truths of Christianity um, at the very outset, in chapters 1 and and into chapter 2, and then it tackles the heresies that deny those that was very truths. The basic truth of Christianity is Christ. Christ is preeminent. Christ is sufficient. Christ is God, we've seen. Christ is Savior. Christ is Redeemer. Christ is Lord. Christ is all that you need. And that's been the message, right? And after stating that message as powerfully and potently as he can right through to chapter 2, verse 7, Paul now begins to attack the heresies beginning in verse 8 that would deny it. These were heresies that would come along and say, well, you know, it's fine that you have Christ, but that's just a start. Oh, there's so much more than that that you need to know. And these poor Colossians who up until now had thought Christ was all that they had needed and that they had received everything and being saved we're now being told that they were a long way off from having received all that God would have for them. There were more things for them to seek. There were higher levels for them to reach. There were deeper depths of spirituality to go to. There was a greater uh, piety for them to explore, more things to experience. Surely they would have been tempted to say, well, we want to join you guys we want him and so Paul writes this letter to tell them no Christ is all that you need look at verse 10 as there you have basically a summary of the first part of the book of chapter 1 into chapter 2 in him in Christ you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority that's verse by verse through the new American standard and really that sums up the point Paul's making there isn't anything lacking there isn't any insufficiency you have been filled in him and therefore there is nothing that you are lacking you lack nothing in life and godliness right now as we come to chapter 2 in the section verses 8 through 23 Paul confronts the Colossians heresy and this Colossian heresy was made up of four different parts. In verses 8 through 15, Paul confronts philosophy. In verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And then he describes it as empty deceit according to human tradition. According to the elemental, the ABC spirits, the one one, two, three, of the world and not according to Christ and we covered verses 8 through 15 the last couple of weeks here in verses 16 through 19 Paul will expose the next two elements of this heresy which are legalism and mysticism and so we'll look at both of those today spend most of our time in legalism we'll introduce mysticism and Lord willing next week we'll Wrap up this whole chapter as we look at the final fourth one, asceticism. Think of like the monks that deny themselves and and would whip themselves into submission as a way to be spiritual and holy with Christ. Now for today, I've broken these verses up into just two sections. You'll see on the back of your bulletin, we're going to begin in verses 16 and 17 with point number one, the bondage of legalism. The bondage of legalism. Notice what it says in verse 16. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know what's coming next, right? There's a critical word here that Paul starts verse 16 with. It's the word therefore. And therefore is a transitional term, which means that Paul is drawing on the preceding truths from verses 9 to 15 that's before that as the basis of his explanation here. So specifically what's he drawing on? Well in verse 9 the fullness of Christ in verse 10 his ultimate authority in verses 11 to 14 Christ's sacrificial and substitutionary atonement in verse 15 his triumphant victory and so collectively because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. The legal demands of the law have been totally and completely satisfied in Christ. And so because Christ is completely sufficient and has canceled the record of debt that stood against us, with all this legal demands, this he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, says Paul, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul's message is clear. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Christ had justly satisfied every demand as he himself paid the record of our debt that stood against us. Now, by the time Paul is writing this, it appears as though external religion had already made its way through the doors and into the Church of Colossae. It was likely a group of Judaizers who were well known by the Apostle Paul since he essentially was one, a Pharisee of all the Pharisees. And they oftentimes just made their way following the gospel. Wherever the gospel went, they came right in there afterwards in order to propagate this message that I know what Paul just said to you in Barnabas, but Christ is not enough. Christ is not all that you need. You need more. And the Judaizers taught that in order for a Christian to be truly made right with God, he must conform to the dietary and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, of Judaism, in order to be truly saved. It was not merely enough to believe in Christ. It was Christ plus works. And it was Christ plus religious practices and traditions of men. Gentiles, and just in case you don't know, Gentiles is everybody else besides the Jews. The Bible says there's Jews and Gentiles. There's the Jews and everybody else is Gentiles. Gentiles had to essentially become Jewish, what was called proselytes which essentially meant that you needed to um, live it under the covenant of the Old Testament as a Jew. Circumcision especially was promoted as being necessary for salvation. But there was also all of the Jewish traditions and customs as well. And so here in verse 16, we see some of that with the mention of the kind of food that you're allowed to eat or with the regard to what festivals that you needed to attend. And, of course, honoring the Sabbath. Now, this word for judgment is also very telling. Paul commands the believers in Colossae, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And this word for judgment is the Greek word krino, and it means to pick out from a group or to separate. And in its negative usage, it means to condemn. This wasn't just giving a hard time over or kind of jostling you. You're out of the picture. You're not in the group unless you conform. And that was the judgment. These Judaizers had come into Colossae and were putting a yoke on these believers' necks and as a result of that, they were in bondage. This is external law-keeping. This is legalism. Legalism and ironically they're prideful enough to think that they man can cast judgment upon God's people i mean how ridiculous but in order for me to really show you what legalism looks like we're going to have to go back to the time when Christ walked the earth because he confronted a group of legalists called the pharisees on a regular basis and so keep a marker in colossians 2 and i want you to follow along and turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, as here we see one of Jesus' many encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees. And you'll recall all the encounters as we went through the Gospel of John, it seemed like every single week Jesus was in a confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel. And so Mark chapter 7 verse 1, notice what it says, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Christ when they had come from Jerusalem. And it had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing, notice, the traditions of the elders. Underline traditions if you're a note taker. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. So this is a a ritual cleansing, not like I'm jumping in a shower, but a, a ritual cleansing. And there were many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked them, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions? There's that word again of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands. And Jesus said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines, notice, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. Now, when we read this 2,000 years l- later, we might be tempted to think this is all about um, being sanitary, right? You think that you wash your hands before you eat, and um, especially in this type of culture where everyone is constantly dirty, yeah, what's the problem? But you, you might want to tell your guys to wash your hands, that's, that's kind of gross, but as usual, Jesus isn't concerned with the action as much as he is the motive of the heart. So what's he saying here? Well, it's focused focus around that quotation of Isaiah. It's actually from Isaiah chapter 1. And in Isaiah chapter 1, if you read it, the prophet had similarly rebuked the people of his day and age for their cold, heartless religion. For although the people there offered the correct sacrifices and they observed their religious festivals and even lifted up continual prayers, they did so with hearts that were rebellious and unrepentant to God. They were good at observing tradition, yet their hearts were far from Christ. This is ritual legalism, and that's what's going on here. These Pharisees and scribes were always trying to demonstrate to everybody else how religious they were. They made sure that when they prayed, they were the loudest in the streets and everyone could see them walking around the temple and go, oh, wow, who could be as holy as these guys? And, and how well they, they kept all of the traditions. And in fact, they had layered on top of God's laws additional works that they did and they kept all of those. As a matter of fact, by all accounts, the amount of water that was typically used to ceremonially wash the hands was not even enough water to actually clean their hands. It was just for show. It was just another man-made tradition that they believed demonstrated just how ceremonially clean, pure they were for whenever, verse 4, they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they cleanse themselves. It was a ritual. A ritual. And this is elevating the traditions of man above the word of God. And it was a legalistic falsehood of the Pharisees that transferred right into the church. Let me show you another example of this. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. At this time, uh, Christ has already been raised from the dead. Paul has been sent out as an apostle to the Gentiles. The Lord is using Paul and Barnabas to establish all these um, Gentile churches across the land. But trouble is brewing in the church. And this was an incredibly challenging time for the early church. As Paul and Barnabas realized, as soon as they're walking out of the church, these Judaizers are walking right in behind them, contradicting everything that they had just said. And so this has some major implication as these guys were messing with the gospel. This wasn't secondary stuff. This was major. And so eventually word actually gets back to the main church, the mother church in Jerusalem, and the council there gathers, and everyone comes together. You've got church leaders and apostles coming in from all across the land to hopefully once and for all settle this issue. And so notice what it says in Acts chapter 15, 1. Luke writes, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What? (laughs) And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren uh, uh, determined that Paul and Barnabas and and some others of them, some other apostles or disciples, should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Jump down to verse 4. Now when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Verse 6, and so the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And God, who knows the heart. God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made... No distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts. Notice, by the law? No. By faith. Now then, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter says, We haven't even been able to obey the law, and you want to put that yoke upon the necks of these new pagan converts? Are you crazy? We're going to come with this whole list of laws, and they're going to say, what do I got to do? That yoke, Peter said, our own fathers, forefathers, the patriarchs, couldn't even bear. You break one of the laws, you've broken how many? All of them. And so the apostles are telling these guys, God is doing something amazing in our midst. He's saving Gentiles in the same way he saved us. How? By grace through faith. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And we have a hard time seeing all the challenges that this presented to the early church. We, we really do. To have Jews and Gentiles sitting in the same room was totally foreign to them. And now they're supposed to be standing side by side praising the Lord and hymns and holding hands together in, in prayer. The Gentiles were considered permanently ceremonially unclean. These are pagans. We can't even get near them or we'll become defiled. Remember in John's gospel John added that little piece in that we had to walk around Samaria so we wouldn't get dirty and Christ walks right through to the woman at the well. These are the things we need to know and understand of what was going on in their early church. But God was on the move and he made verse 9 no distinction between Jew and Gentile cleansing their hearts by faith. So there was grace for them my friend. And that has always been found in Christ alone. And if you have received him by grace through faith, not of your own doing, but of a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one might boast, if you receive that Christ, then Jesus will say to you as he did in Matthew eleven twenty through 30 Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy with laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's what you get when you see Christ Jesus as Lord. And so Peter finishes off his little speech in front of the Jerusalem council when he says in verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. To be saved, whether Jew or Gentile, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, has always been by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say in Genesis fifteen six about Abram? And he believed the Lord and he was counted to him as righteousness. Saved by faith. There's one more text I want to share with you before we move on. It's it's from a a little bit of a different angle on this, but I think it will be helpful to us. Turn to Romans 14 for a moment as Paul sets forth how believers are to live with one another, not using our spiritual freedom from the law as a stumbling block to somebody else. And and here's the point he's going to make. Um, The mature believer in this argument understands that there is a certain amount of liberty that he has in Christ and so his conscience is cleared to eat meat while the weaker believer has come out of paganism and all he sees when he sees meat on the counter is a piece of meat that was sacrificed to idols in the pagan temples and so the scene here would be like these two men are sitting downstairs across from one one another at one of our potlucks How would we handle both sides of this situation? Look at what Paul says in verse one. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters, on, on secondary matters. They're not important. One's man's faith allow him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge? Same thing that Paul says in Colossians 2. Who are you to judge? Someone else's servant. To his own master he stands or falls. And we are servants of the Lord, so he says, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Don't worry about whether he'll stand or not. The Lord will equip him to stand. He'll be just fine. So that's really nice and clear. And really it takes care of our food issue back in Colossians 2, right? The Judaizers were wanting to judge the Colossian believers on what they ate and drank. And in both places it's clear. Do not let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. However, don't take your liberty and look down on those who are weaker in the faith either. There's two sides of this coin. Um, This weaker believer, this might be a sanctification sort of thing. It might be an issue of their conscience. You might not know that he's come out of paganism and all he does when he sees meat is see something evil and sinful about it. So yes, you've got the liberty to eat all the meat you want. I love meat. Just give me a plate of meat. But what I'm going to do is, if I'm sitting down with someone and they've made, especially if they've made known to me, yeah, this is a a stumbling block for me, I'm not going to take my liberty and jam it down their face. However, a false teacher, I am going to take my liberty and I'm not going to budge. A false teacher is trying to make you, uh, legalize you, and put you back into bondage after Christ has freed you. It's Galatians 5 1. You've been freed. What are you doing going back into bondage? And so, you need to sermon on these sorts of things. There's times that you stand on that liberty and freedom and say, no, I'm not going back. That, that's putting me back under the yoke. Why would I do that? Well, that's the way how you can be spiritual like me. Oh, maybe I should pray about that. The Lord has given you the liberty on these things. So, so, you need to use the discernment on this. And, and uh, Romans 14 is a wonderful chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, read those couple chapters. Those who are struggling in those areas. But think about it. You know, if, if for example, um, your conscience, you grew up um, maybe in Israel, or maybe you've got a, a Jewish relative, and your family has eaten kosher all their life, that's great. You're free to do so. Just don't then use that as a means of. Earning favor with God. You know, there's this um, uh, Hebrew roots movement going around. Really evil stuff. Really evil stuff. Or using this sort of thing against your brother like, you're so spiritual with what you eat. Romans 14, 7 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Stop worrying about eating and drinking. What about the festivals or this new moon or or Sabbath? Well, Paul already said back in Colossians 2, no one's to act as your judge on that, but what does he say here in Romans 14 verse 5? I think it speaks to that as well. He says, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Okay? So here in this scenario, this is, um, this could be a Jew um, who's who's elevated the Sabbath. They're taking the, the Sabbath off, not Sunday, Saturday, okay? And they're taking off. So one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is a conscience issue. He who, reg- he who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. If you're doing this, taking this one day and, and elevating it above another, such as uh, the church gathering on the first day of the week, you do it unto It's not so that you're seen as more spiritual or, or something like that. So pretty much the same principle here applies. In God's view, both men are free in their own conviction to do what honors the Lord. And like I said, we separate the first day uh, of the week as the Lord's day, as the apostles did. However, there's nothing spiritually binding to that one day in, in corporate worship of, um, of the Lord. We have the freedom to meet on Wednesday if we want to meet in worship. There's nothing wrong with meeting on Wednesday. Yesterday the church gathered at Tim's house on a Saturday. <gasps> Were they, what? Were they singing songs? Were they acting as the church? <gasps> okay? This is how legalism and this stuff starts. And you got seven-day Adventists and all this. I mean, there are examples after examples I could go into on, yeah, this stuff happens everywhere all the time. Alright? Um, in fact, for my study of Scripture, I actually think it's probably very likely the early church, who had a lot of Jews in it, probably met late Saturday night because their days end once the, 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 um, the, the, the day ends at like six o'clock at night. That's when the day ends for them, okay, and the next day starts. I actually think for my study of Scripture, they probably met Saturday nights so they could observe the Sabbath. It ended at, at day, uh, sundown, so Saturday night was the new day, so then they would have church, and, and they would gather together, and then likely they then gathered early Sunday morning as well and had another service And then they went to work right right after. They then went to work on on Sunday. Their day off was Saturday. So they're working Sunday. They didn't get no weekends. (laughs) All right? And so Paul continues in in verse um, 6. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and also gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. All right? So in other words, the Lord may have convicted your conscience to constrain a certain activity in your life. um, And you're doing that by faith. That's good. That's great. Um, But if that is not expressly written in God's word, you can't apply your own convictions to someone else's life. You're not the judge. Okay? You're not the judge. A helpful verse on this is 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24, which says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So sometimes you need to just keep your mouth closed. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is love your neighbor as yourself. Simply put, let's have a little grace for those who are growing in the Lord. Instead of dropping a yoke upon their neck, why don't you come alongside your brother and sister and help them up and show them a little bit of compassion. It would go a long way. All right, so let's get back to Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Paul says, therefore, because you are complete in Christ, Let no one pass judgment on you, in question of food and drink, or with regard to festival. Um, And, you know, what are these things? Um, The festival, uh, these are the annual Jewish celebrations, such as the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, we went through all those in in, um, John's Gospel or or Pentecost. Um, Or Paul says, with regard to a new moon, the Jews would... Um, sometimes offer sacrifices whenever there was a new moon or, or once a month or the first day of the month or a Sabbath day. These, Paul says, are a mere shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, a shadow is a good way to describe the types of Christ in the Old Testament because shadows provide an idea of what something looks like without completely revealing the the object. And the Old Testament does this with Christ. However, nobody looks at a shadow and believes, oh, that's the real thing. Shadows themselves have no substance. Their only reality is in what the the, uh, substance is. They're the sign or a pointer of something else, something that is greater, and the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 17 tells us all these things were a shadow of the things to come. Jesus is the substance. He is the reality. And let me just rattle off a couple quick of these to you, um, these shadows that are pictured in the Old Testament, but the substance of them we see revealed in the New Testament, and it looked ahead because it belonged to Christ. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus reveals the prophet Jonah was a shadow, a picture, a type of himself. The Lord said... For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah in the fish was the shadow. The reality of it belonged to Christ. Three days, three nights in the tomb. Then in John chapter 3, verse 14, we see that converse, uh, conversation with Nicodemus. And the Lord's telling him about the story of the bronze servant that Moses held up in the wilderness and that the people had to look upon in order to, to live through the snake bites, this was a shadow that looked ahead to something greater. The Lord said, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, so the shadow looked ahead to the substance. In John 6, 32-33, the shadow was the manna bread that came down out of heaven that came down out of heaven that fed God's people as they wandered in the wilderness but the substance of that belongs to Christ Jesus said in verse 32 of chapter 6 of John truly truly I say to you it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he Christ who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world So the manna that came down out of heaven was the shadow. But the substance you see belonged to Christ. He is the true bread that gives life. Jesus would go on to say in John 6, 49 to 51, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I, Christ said, I am the living bread. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Remember when Jesus is walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't realize it's Christ, and he's walking along with them. It says in Luke twenty four twenty seven that beginning with Moses, the, the five books of, of the law, and all the prophets, Jesus, he, interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. It was all about him. I like to say it's a hymn book, right? And so Jesus took them through the whole Old Testament going, oh, here I am. Oh, here I am. Oh, here I am. And they're going, imagine that Bible study. Jesus taking you right through the whole Old Testament. Why? Because he is the substance. The shadow pointed to him. So let's wrap this thought up. Legalism today is still one of the most dangerous things that can ruin a church. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, he perfectly balanced both grace and truth, didn't he? And we must do the same, beloved. You don't want to come with just all truth with no grace. That's putting a yoke on them. And you don't want to come with all grace with zero truth. That's not helpful for them either. Christ perfectly came in both grace and truth. And that's the way that we want to, to live. Alright, let's go to this final point. I'm just going to kind of introduce this to us because I kind of got really into the legalism thing and there's a million more verses i mean i was thinking about luke 19 when you got i think it's luke 18 when you got the the uh the two men the tax collector and the pharisee and and the and the pharisee like oh god thank god i'm not like this loser tax collector over here you know <laughs> and the tax collector is just praying and he's saying lord i'm just a wretched sinner please save me christ goes who was saved who's going to the kingdom the tax collector and so there's all sorts of examples we can look at for for legalism and the the dangers of it Um, let's go just uh, introduce the final point which is the next part of the um, Paul's teaching is the deception of mysticism the danger of mysticism he begins this new warning in verse 18 notice what it says Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. So what is mysticism? Well, mysticism looks for realities and subjective experiences. It's it's experience focused. Um, It is the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. And it's, it's, a, it's very tempting. Um, it looks for truth more so internally, as it usually depends on weighing feelings, um, your intuition, and other sort of internal sensations. That's, that's how a mystic would operate. And let me start off by saying that experience must always be based on the truth of God's word. It must be grounded in the truth. Or you're, you're wandering off into mystical lands. The only way to determine what is real from what is false, what is of God and what is not, is the objective truth of God's word. Right? It's not your subjective feelings. It's not by felt it or or but I heard it. Or how about what the Latter Day Saints teach? Well, I just know it's true because I have a burning in my bosom. Therefore, they say they shall feel that it's right. That is straight out of the Theology of the Mormon's Doctrines and Covenants, chapter 9, verse 8. What's the problem with that, you ask? Well, number one, it's completely subjective. Oh, whenever I got that burning feeling, I know it's Yahweh. Might be Harper. <laughs> uh, number two, again, is it aligned with the truth of God's word? Th- these are the things that we have to align, because the Bible says a heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately, I like the translation wicked. Who can know it? And so there's a lot of deception in those feelings things. And, and feelings, we're very feelings type people, right? Oh, I feel sad. Or I feel good. I feel happy. I feel excited. I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel. I'm feeling. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, oh, I, I know this person is saved. I just know it. Or God told me this and they're so sure of it and that turns out to be wrong. I mean, how many people said, I'm prophesying Trump is going to win this year and that didn't happen. But let me end on a little secret. God is never wrong. God is never wrong. So there's a lot of people who say these things are from God and when they don't come true, guess what? That wasn't from God. And so who are you talking to? And this is what the false teachers claim. Notice, this is the dangers. Look at the second half of verse 18. They were going on in detail about visions and were puffed up without reason by his own sensuous mind. And like many of the heretics and cults down through the ages, they claimed their false teaching came through um, angel worship and etc., and had been delivered to them through visions. And these false teachers always claim they were receiving some New revelation from God. And again, I point the parallel to the Mormon church. Mormonism is based on the testimony of one man, Joseph Smith. And he claimed he was visited by an angel, didn't he? And he showed him these golden tablets were, and he gave him the special glasses to read the whole thing. And, and he had this incredible subjective experience and was told that Christendom had become apostate, all churches had gone astray. And I'm going to give you the truth. I'm going to give you new revelation. Listen. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Let me say it again. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. God has spoken. God has given us his word. We don't need some new revelation or some new um, secret insight. Paul says in Galatians 1, 8-9, but even if we, even if myself and the apostles or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Don't even bid him a Godspeed, Paul says. it doesn't matter if I or, or another apostle comes back here and teaches you a different gospel than the one that you've already received don't receive them if it's an angel that shows up don't accept it and so mysticism is a subjective kind of experience and we see this today with the new age movement creeping into the church everything there is found in experience and all for experiencing God I'd definitely love to experience me some some God time, but it must be based on the, the principles of Scripture. These guys, verse 19, were not holding fast to the head. They were not holding fast. They were disconnected from Christ. But Paul warns us, let no one disqualify you. Rather, we hold fast to the head, which is Christ from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from who? God. God will give us the increase. God will give us the knowledge that we need in that time. We just want to make sure that it's, it's rooted in the word of God. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, that's where we're landing the plane for today. If you guys need um, any prayers... Um, You're welcome to come forward, and I want to invite you to please stand as we sing the Song of Invitation. Thank you.